scripture reading before this morning's lesson is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. we um, always happy to have our visitors with us. We have folks from the Healing Transition, from the community, um, Megan and Derek, it's great to have you all. Christina, I don't know if y'all have seen Christina's back uh, this weekend, great to see her. Um, the ladies, of course, have been here for a, a while uh, now, and we wish the while would be eternal, but they keep going back to Europe. Anybody else want them to move back? I don't know if you've heard that or not, Kevin. And Nettie's here, too. Hey, Nettie. I didn't see you. Um, great to have all y'all. I'm probably missing somebody, but we're really happy to have everybody out today. This paragraph that was just read a minute ago contains uh, our theme verse for the year, and that's 1 John 4:19. You've seen this um, logo on all sorts of things around the building, on the website. The verse says, we love because he first loved us. And that can be a very uh, convicting and intimidating thing to read because it's a very high bar. We're supposed to love in the same way that God loved us. God's love is the standard, and God didn't hold anything back. He's all in uh, on, 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 on love, loving us. He sent His only Son, who did no wrong, gave Him up. He gave His all. He gave His everything. And we're being called, basically, uh, to love God in the same way that he loved us. And that's a call to, to a life of, of self-emptying, of, of self-sacrifice. And it cuts against the grain often of what we're told, uh, you know, human life is about. And, uh, you know, these urges that we, we have within us that would have us lean in toward ourselves and find our own uh, gratification rather than seeking uh, the well-being of other people. Thankfully, though, the text of, of, of the epistle of 1 John talks about love as something that grows and develops within us. It's not something presented as fully formed the minute you commit your life to Jesus Christ. It's something that, that uh, God is growing in us. It's something that God uh, is saying is coming to characterize us. In fact, the word that's used over and over again in the, first, in the, the epistle of 1 John is the word perfecting. God is perfecting it, or it is a perfected love that He's seeking, a perfect love that He's seeking. And that might, might sound even more intimidating because in our uh, usage of the English word perfect, we often mean flawless, error-free, no blemishes. It's just pristine, you know, flawlessly perfect. And that's not what the word here means. It comes, uh, it's a form of the Greek word telos, which means goal, basically. It, it's being mature or moving toward the end for which God designed it. It's um, the intention that God has, has placed in it. So 
perfect in the idea of we're being perfected, we're being completed might be a better way of thinking about that. And God is, is gradually doing that in us. And he's, it, it's, it's gradual, but it is certain. Um, he is perfecting His love in us, and we are being transformed from this raw human state of, of being self-serving and self-oriented and selfish beings to a godlike being of selfless love. That is happening, according to the Bible. God intends to accomplish that in us. But God is not going to do that without our complicity in the process. He didn't make robots, right? Um, we have to choose to allow Him to do that in our lives. And that's what I'm going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. You'll notice the word perfected uh, is several times just in the paragraph that, that uh, we read, but it, it appears several times in the epistle of 1 John, usually connected with love. We love because He first loved us. Well, He's perfecting that in us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Love perfected. There are several of the references on the screen there that we're going to be going to over uh, the next two lessons today and next week. Uh, basically, I want to talk about uh, two of those this morning. Two ways that um, God is perfecting our love in us. What does it take to be transformed by God's love into this being defined by love? How can we truly come to be people who love in the way that God loved us? We love our, our, our fellow church members, we love our community, we love the world in the way that He loved us. That's what 1 John 4.19 calls us to. What does love perfected look like? And I want to give you two uh, aspects of that this morning that come straight out of the text. It's a very simple sermon, straight out of the text of 1 John. The first one is, it looks like keeping God's Word. That's what it looks like. Love perfected looks like people who are recognizing the authority, um, the, 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 uh, the direction that comes from the pages of Scripture. And so the basic point here is that love, love of God and keeping God's Word, those are two things that move in tandem. They're not separate. They go together. Love for God and keeping God's Word are, are inextricably linked. And so let me ask you the question right now. If I just said two words, love and obedience, do you think most people in our culture would link those? Tell me what, on the street, what, what comes to your mind when I say the word love? Obedience, submission. No. Almost no one would say that. And I have a hunch that there's a lot of us in here that those are kind of like, ugh, those are intention. Love and obedience? Keeping somebody else's word? Submitting to their will? That's connected inextricably in the book of 1 John with love, love of God. And so let's talk about why those are linked and how they're linked. One link is that obedience to God's word is connected to your love and my love for God. It's, a, it's a, an expression of gratitude toward God. That's why we can find a passage like this in 1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. God is perfecting His love in us in that He is drawing us ever more fully into a commitment to live by His Word, to be transformed by His will, to learn what that Word means, and to open ourselves fully to the wisdom of God that's inherent in that, even when it cuts against the grain of what we're thinking, how our culture is, would have us go, or what our urges would have us do. Uh, we let the Word argue with us. We let it push back. 
We don't assume that, well, anything I'm feeling must be God's will. No, the word sometimes is actually going, pushing us in a different direction. It's often counterintuitive. And so keeping his word is part of having a perfected love of God. They are inextricably linked because when we appreciate, uh, love God, when we have gratitude toward God, we want to keep his commandments. That's one of the links. That's what John 14, 15 says. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Another link is that obedience, our obedience, is an acknowledgement that God's laws, we believe, they're sort of a statement that we believe that God's laws are actually good for us. They don't always feel good for us. They don't always, um, they're not the first choice we would maybe make. We don't, that's not the thing we would pick if you just didn't, you know, didn't know any better. But we, we acknowledge that if we read something in Scripture and we find that to be the case, it's a, it's a tacit statement that, you know what, I'm going to trust that. It, it, his commandments, His rules, his, his will is actually good for me, even if it doesn't feel like it. Um, is that how you view obedience? Is that how you view holiness? Is that how you view living under the, the rule of God's word, submitting, keeping his word, as 1 John puts it? Do you view it that way? As, a, as you know, This is good for me. Um, there's a whole lot of things in the world like that, you know, that, that are good for us that we, we wouldn't maybe naturally take to. Um, any of you here rearing children, you know, know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, your, your kids may say, there's adults in this room, I happen to know some of them, some of my real good friends, they ain't putting that thing in their mouth. You know, it, some, of, some of us, if we were left to our devices, I wouldn't be in this group because I, I really do honestly love vegetables. I grew up on them, a garden, I, did, I, I crave, I lust for okra, all right? I confess, fried okra, I lust for it. Um, I think that's scripturally okay. Uh, praise God, okra, I, praise God, I love okra. But, but there's folks who, if, if left to their devices, many of our own kids, they would eat red meat, starches, and sugar. That's the food groups. Right? Or just sugar. Just, and, and do you say because that's what you're feeling, therefore that's okay? No, we recognize that we kind of need to eat some vegetables. We need to learn, we need to acquire a taste for them because we believe that they're good for us. That in the long run, we'll be more whole and healthy people, happier people, joy, more joyful people. It'll be good for us. We do all kinds of things like that. Anybody here love the dentist? You know, I can't wait to go to the dentist. No, but we know if I don't go to the dentist for enough years, there's going to be some problems. You go to the doctor when you need to. You know, you, maybe you, you take your kids and you get them vaccinated and they throw a fit. They, they just lose their minds. But you're like, but I don't, I'd rather you, you know, not have this or that disease or whatever. There's all kinds of things we recognize. And we've got to look at God's word that way that we believe it is good for us. 1 John 5 says this. This is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. Now, in the, in the short run, they may go, cut against the grain. That's why it's called repentance. We have to change our will. That's what that word literally means, to perceive differently than you used to. You, you're being trained to think about something that might not have been intuitively what you would have gone for, but it's good for you, it's better for you. Think about sexuality in the world and in the Bible. You know, the Bible presents this picture of sex is something designed by God. It's a blessing. It's for monogamous, you know, committed marriage partners. All right? And, and yet, 
in the modern West at least, and probably throughout all time, but even especially in the modern West, sexuality is looked at some sort of the province of individual choice, and you can you know be as promiscuous as you want, and you can um, you know commit fornication and adultery, and that's kind of an individual choice. And who's anybody else to tell somebody they can't? I, I remember this uh, little video clip I watched uh, many many years ago. I might have mentioned this in a sermon. I can't remember, but it was two NFL quarterbacks uh, who were really famous. Uh, some of you younger folks won't even know these names except as some, some reference in history. But Joe Namath was a quarterback who uh, was you know, a, a phenomenon socially as well as athletically. He came out of the University of Alabama. He went to the New York Jets. Back in those days, it was the AFL. They were the startup league. And he was very brash and uh, braggadocious. And he was a, a kind of a playboy. Uh, always had a different girl on his arm. And one time, uh, and, and then there's Roger Staubach, who is this Dallas Cowboys quarterback. He's as straight as an arrow. He's, he's a Christian. He's monogamous. Um, kind of looked more boring, you know, to, the, uh, to a lot of people. And he one time in a, a talk show was basically saying, you know, I, I guarantee you I have a better sex life than Joe Namath does. Because I've been married to the same woman for however many years. And, you know, biblically he talked about the Bible and God and all this stuff. And, and that's an example right there. Whose will are we going to trust on the matter of sexuality or whatever else? What God says or what somebody else might say? Now, having said that, a whole lot of us mess up, not only in that area, but in every other area. We come broken. We come wounded. That's where the gospel starts. So we don't always keep God's will perfectly. And that's why we have Christ, as 1 John 2 says, as our propitiation. Read with me here in 1 John 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, it's, the story isn't over when you mess up. That's where the story starts. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is, is the beginning. That's the basis for when God addresses us. There's no other kind of people except broken, messed up people, sinners. We've got an advocate. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is, he's the payment for our sins, not for ours only, but, for also, but also for all the sins of the world. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. He's saying that we have this propitiation, this atonement for our sins. And yet still, I want you to note that he expects us to be growing in our respect for God's will. Our ability to keep it, our, our obedience to it. So in this same context, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm not giving you carte blanche to sin because you have Jesus Christ the righteous as your propitiation. You do have that, but still the goal is holiness. It's obedience. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. All right? I don't think he's saying here anybody who messes up and commits a sin is a liar and doesn't have Jesus because that makes the middle verses I've got grayed out not make any sense. Right? He's saying if you just practice this as a way of life and you're not trying to triangulate ever more closely to the standard of God's word, then you're not really walking with him. I do expect you to follow these things. And when you mess up, you've got Jesus. But still try not to mess up. In fact, the fact you have Jesus will help you. Right? So, um, this is part of perfecting the love of God, is being people who aspire in concrete ways to live ever more closely to the Word of God. And let me tell you something, folks. Everything in Christianity, everything in Christianity depends upon the Word of God, depends upon Scripture. 
Think about what we'd be in the dark on if we didn't have the word. I'm so thankful that slavery is at least, you know, race. I know there's sexual slavery and trafficking and all that. That's, it's probably never not going to be in the world, some kind of slavery. But slavery as a, so, as a politically uh, accepted and authorized institution is gone out of America. All right, praise God for that. Do you know how many Christians thought slavery was not only okay, it was okay to sell people's babies away, to kidnap people? This was routine in antebellum America. And do you know where the impulse is to get rid of the slave trade and even a lot of the anti-slavery ideology came from that ends up you know, leading to the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments and the emancipation of slaves and the end of race slavery in America? It came from Christians. People like William Wilberforce in England and a whole host of folks in New England in the U.S. who read their Bibles and read things like the Golden Rule and read about Jubilee that even when there was slavery in the Bible, God was already doing pretty radical things to gradually, you know, God doesn't typically come in and go, you know, your whole social system is wrong, I'm going to change it right this minute. He works within that. Polygamy is allowed for a while, and yet you can see in Genesis that it doesn't work. It leads to jealousy and rivalry and all this stuff. Already there are seeds, even in Genesis, that you're leading toward the monogamy of one man, one woman that you see all over the New Testament. No polygamy in the New Testament. Well, it's already being critiqued subtly in the Old. Same thing with slavery. The fact that people had to give up their slaves every seven years and every 50 years in a jubilee just sort of redistribute wealth and get rid of debt and get rid of slaves. That is, there was nothing like that in the ancient world. So once, the time, when you, once you get to the New Testament, you're reading things like, you know, as you would be treated, treat other people. A lot of Christians in America began to, to use that as a basis for an anti-slavery critique. How do we know that racism is wrong without the Bible? Be careful if your Christianity starts stepping away from reading closely, as closely as possible, the Word of God. Because a lot of the things that you just morally know are wrong, you probably wouldn't without that. Racism is as old as humanity. You could argue that it is the default mode of humanity. That's kind of where we go. We're that warped if we don't have somebody telling us better. And I'll tell you who tells us better is the Bible. In the 19th century, Racism was based supposedly on science. You get people at Yale and Harvard, this thing called scientific racism. And it was Christians in America, when it was opposed, who said, no, the Bible says that of one blood God made all the nations of the world. The Bible says that in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And they push back, and now science says, you know what, race is a social construct. So science is now so where we were, we were wrong, actually. Though that was mainstream science. So, I mean, what would we even know about Jesus without the Bible? We'd know he existed from a few references in, you know, uh, Latin language, history, Roman history. But we're not going to know a lot about Jesus at all. And so the minute we start softening up our allegiance to the Word of God, th- th- there's untold uh, uh, distortions that are going to come out of that that are very practical. So that's number one. Perfected love looks like us growing ever more closely to the Word of God. Secondly, this morning, um, 
Loving one another is another thing that in 1 John is connected to perfected love. Loving one another. Let's look at 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is, notice it, perfected in us. Another one of the few places where, uh, several places in 1 John where perfected love is attached to some specific area of our Christian uh, transformation. In this case, it is loving one another. God is, we, we know when it's love perfected, love completed, love as God designed it, the end goal of love in us, when we are thoroughly loving one another, brothers and sisters loving each other in the Lord's church. So let's talk about that for the rest of our lesson here. I want to start with, at this point with a thought experiment. I want you to fill in the blank with this statement I'm going to put up on the screen. Think about your view of Christianity, your view of the New Testament church, your view of what it means to be a faithful New Testament church, a sound Orthodox New Testament church, small o Orthodox, of course, in our circles. This, this is the, the thought experiment. Fill in the blank in your mind. If we in our church don't blank, we are in eternal jeopardy. If we in our church don't do whatever, whatever what, would, what comes into your mind, I'm not asking for an actual response from people, I'm to be thinking about it. What's the thing, or two or three, that in your mind, this is just a, the, the litmus test of faithfulness, of being a sound body of believers? You got an answer or two in your head? I don't know what your answer is. First John's repeated answer is brotherly love. Over and over and over again in First John, it's, it's pretty almost re, like redundant. Like, we got it, we got it, we got it. He's like, do you got it, really? That's what it says. How crucial is love for one another? How crucial is brotherly love? I'm going to quickly read several verses. I want you to notice what, I, what, what, what each of these verses connects brotherly love or love for one another Two, okay? What are the stakes? How essential, how crucial is brotherly love? All right, 1 John 2.10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. What do you think the corollary of that would be? The, the, uh, the opposite. What, what are you in if you don't love your brother? Is that a serious thing in the Bible? That means you're lost. Uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's kind of everything. Whoever does not practice righteousness is God, not of God. Okay, got that. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. It, it determines whether you're a child of the devil or God, if you have brotherly love or not. Uh, chapter 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's the evidence that you have eternal life, not damnation. Brotherly love. Remember what love is in the Gospel of John and all through the Bible. It's selfless, self-emptying love for other people. You put them first. He's not just talking about a feeling. And that's connected to things like life, light, salvation. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's a serious thing in the Bible to not know God. 
So that's just a sample. But I wanted you to notice how many crucial things are connected to brotherly love. And we might have been taught that all sorts of other things were litmus tests of being a sound church or a faithful church. I won't go into all the ones that I could come up with. But here's what John says. Here's what the inspired pen of John says. Our love for each other concretely, selflessly in this church is soundness. That's faithfulness. I'm not saying that's the only thing in the Bible, but it's a big one. And in 1 John, it's, it's, it's probably the biggest. All right. So if, we're, if our love is being perfected, we begin to have more and more of this radical brotherly love for one another in this church. I want to talk about one more thing that's really interesting that brotherly love is said to do. That, in, that, that, that put back into the context of the entire Bible, the entirety of what the Bible says about this topic, is really a remarkable thing to say. So I've already flashed this verse on the screen, but now look at the part in red. He says we ought to love one another in verse 11. And in verse 12 of 1 John 4, he says, No one has ever seen God. God's invisible. You know, you can't see God in some sense. But then he says, if we love one another, there it is, there's brotherly love. If we love one another, this unseen God abides in us. He lives here. And his love is perfected in us. There it is again, perfected love. So that's an astounding thing to say. The invisible God, in a sense, is made visible when we love each other. He's living here. He's, he, people can say, oh, where's God? Well, he's, his address is 6320 Whitted Road. Not this building only, but in the relationship of us people. He's invisible otherwise. He's made visible and he's manifest. He's palpable and tangible in our relationships. Isn't that a remarkable thing to say? Because all through Scripture, God is presented as invisible, as unapproachable. Passages like 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, which says this about the King of kings and Lord of lords. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's a person, a being whom no one ha has ever seen or can see. That's God. And there are warnings in the Bible against trying to make God too visible, too tangible physically. Get him in a, in a kind of portrayal or a shape or something where you can handle him and, and control him. And uh, the reason for this is God is he, he's transcendent. He's ineffable. You, you cannot box in God by a single shape or a single location. He's not the God of this land or that land or of, this, of, the fer of fertility or war. Or, he's the God of everything and everyone and every place. You're not going to portray him with a little image of some sort. And there are warnings about that, reducing him, limiting him to visible appearance. Remember what was said in Deuteronomy 4 about when Moses had gone up into Mount Horeb to get the law. And, and, and God says in Deuteronomy 4.15 to the children of Israel in their, the early phases of their history, Therefore watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Mount Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. You, remember, you didn't see any shape or form. There was nothing visible. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. You cannot reduce the ineffable, transcendent, eternal God to a shape or a site or a place. And he said, don't try to do that. He's invisible. Remember when Moses said, let me see your glory? And God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall, let me, shall see me and live. You won't even be able to handle it. 
So he does some, it's kind of a weird passage. He puts him in the crag of a rock and lets him look at his backside, which blows my mind. What does that even mean? But anyway, um, he, he, you can't just look full frontal on God and, and, and live. You can't handle the glory, the weight, the substance of that being. So that's, that's the, I wanna, I'm, I'm saying all that to backlight this point here, to put it in relief, and that is this. Here in 1 John, what is being said is sort of the opposite. That God's actual presence, all of that glory, all of that holiness, all of that ineffable otherness that can't be boxed in or reduced to one image or shape, all of that God is manifest in His people. And in particular, in their love for one another. No one has ever seen God, 1 John 4, 12. If we love one another, God's living here. That's what abide means. He's living in us. And His love is completed or perfected, brought to maturation in us. And that's because in Christ, God did come near, didn't He? Emmanuel, the God with us. We did, quote, behold His glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we did the very thing Moses was asking to see, that he could, you couldn't do until the Incarnation. We beheld His glory, glory of the only, God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the incarnate divinity. And then when we love one another as He taught us to love, we reflect that divine glory. That's why in John 13, the Last Supper, Jesus kneels down. The King of Kings acts like a slave and washes their feet and says, if you do this, people will know you're from me. Because that's the essence of his character. So folks, let's make this concrete. In our church, in, this, in our relationships, when we defer, when you defer to someone else's way, rather than insisting on your own way. In other words, when you love somebody, selflessness, right? That's what love is. What you're doing is nothing less than making the invisible God visible. When, when I see a fellow believer in terms of God's acceptance of them in Christ, rather than some human identity marker like their political views, or what nation they came from, or what language they speak, or what their race is, or their culture is. I am making the invisible God visible. Because that's love. When I forgive a sister or brother who sinned against me, when you forgive a sister or brother who slighted you, the same way that God has already forgiven all of us, you're making the invisible God visible. And if we're not doing those things and many other things like them, we can talk about righteousness and soundness and faithfulness all day long. God isn't here. He is manifest when we love one another like He loved us. It's on every page of 1 John just about. And all that's the contextual backdrop for our verse for the year. We love because He first loved us. He's perfecting that in us. In fact, love is so wrapped up in who God is that if we claim to love God without loving our brothers and sisters, and that means selfless devotion to them, or it's not love, you're just using the word and giving it another definition, then, then the, 1 John says we're living a lie. If anyone says in 1 John 4.20, I love God and hates his brother, well, he's a liar. Wow. It, that, I don't think he's trying to be disrespectful to people. 
It's just a fact. It just, it just doesn't add up. It's, it's contradiction. He who, doesn't, he who does not love his brother whom he, hasn't, um, whom he has seen can't love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's very common nowadays. You know, it's a growing category in all these religious surveys by like uh, the Barna Group or Pew or National Institutes of Humanity and all these different groups that, that, that survey religion in America to see this category really mushroom, really growing. It's the category of spiritual, not religious. People who think that they individually have a relationship with God or Christ or whoever, whatever divinity they, they imagine to be the real one, but they don't need organized religion. And I, I'm the first to say organized religion has messed up a lot of stuff. A lot of problems in the world come from organized religion. But organized religion means a lot of different things too. What do you mean by organized? Right? I mean, we're, we're not real organized here, <laughs> I think, in many ways. Um, I'm, I'm, I love it, but we're a lot less organized in some place. What do you mean by organized? Mm-mm-mm-mm. You can have that at church too, you know? Let's get uniforms for everybody, you know? I mean, so what do you mean by organized religion? What do you mean by spiritual, not religious? But I think what we, we know that there's a whole lot of people who think they can just sort of be solo. Where's that in the New Testament? Everybody's in a church where Paul's going to start a new church when he is solo. I want to share with you a quote that really underscores this point about love of brothers is the other side of the coin of love for God. I mean, when Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment, singular, what's his answer? There's one A and one B. You love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Oh, and by the way, you're not really doing that unless you're loving your neighbor, you're loving your neighbors yourself. And that's all 1 John is really doing here. It's just the great command applied. There just isn't love of God without an association, a deep relationship with His people and other humans who are prospectively His people if we'll share the gospel with them. So we'll close with this quote. A little article I read. It's actually a student website, a student organization, a Christian organization at Harvard. And I thought it was a really good article. It's a little organization called Ichthus. Nick Nowak, I don't know who he is. I kind of think R might be missing, but maybe not. God's love perfected in us is the name of the article. And he says this, God does, uh, God does not pour out his magnificent love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit in order that it might just stay there. That's not the point of God giving you the Holy Spirit. Wow, this is cool, I got this thing. Bigger than that. It's not just for our own amusement and for the advancement of our selfish spiritualities. The goal of God's love is missional. He's sending you out. It aims to redirect sinners who are curved in upon themselves outward to the other and to God's delightful, life-giving commandments. When we seek experiences of God's love merely for our own sake, we give evidence that we do not know God well at all and that we fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. God's love is extended and shared with us in order that we might imitate God in extending and sharing it with others. This is what God is after. All right, 12.02, my typical stopping time, so I will stop. All right, thank you for your attention today and your, your presence. Um, hope that the things that have been uh, done and said here today have been all to God's glory. They've been in keeping with Scripture. That's our goal, and that you've been edified. If we can help you in any way, grow close, closer to the Lord or learn more about the Lord, we're all learning ourselves. We're happy to sit down and 
share time together, have a cup of coffee or whatever, and just um, help any way we can. So uh, thank you for being here. We're going to now uh, stand and sing. <laughs>